We are in week two of a new series that we kicked off titled Defeating Depression, right? All of us know someone who is suffering from severe anxiety or depression, whether we know it or not. But statistically, the truth of the matter is that so many people uh, do not seek help, right? It's something that we don't want to admit to others, uh, maybe even ourselves. So what happens is that we suffer in quiet isolation, imagining the crippling sadness will kind of somehow uh, disappear uh, just as quickly as it jumped on the scene. But, but what happens when it doesn't? Right? What happens when it doesn't and the days turn into weeks and months and even, uh, even years? What do we do then? Is this it for us? Right? Will this be forever with us every single day of our lives? Or are there ways to defeat depression? And that's what this series is all about. Uh, I want to I kind of give the disclaimer I said it last week, and I'm going to say it again uh, almost every week. I'm going to say it that, that what you hear today is not the wherewithal, right? What you hear today is probably just going to scratch the surface. The surface is going to kind of point you in the right direction, right? Uh, just coming to church alone, just kind of praying is just not enough. There, there are other steps in this process and in this journey that need to happen, that need to take place. If you find yourself uh, in a position where you are suffering from anxiety or depression, you might need to seek uh, clinical help, right, professional help with that. And so this today, what we're talking about over this series, it's not the where we're for. These are not all the answers kind of put together in a five-week series. There's more to this, and I want to make sure that that is clear. And I also want to make sure that some of you went home last week and told your friends, my pastor said that you have depression. (laughs) That's not what I said either. That's not, you try to put them in the box and be like, that's not what I said. I want to be clear with that, all righty? So let's jump into uh, what we're going to be talking about. Last week, we talked about what depression looks like. You can catch it on our website uh, or you can catch it on our podcast platforms if you want to kind of share that with someone that you know, right? But today, we're going to talk about why don't people who are suffering seek help? Why? To people who are suffering, why don't they seek help? Now, um, I love celebrating moms, as, as I said this before. I love my mom. My mom passed many years back, and uh, just the other day I was telling my wife that, um, you know, many people get to celebrate their moms, and they should, man, they should do everything in their, in their power, in their resources to celebrate their mom because the moment when you don't get that opportunity to do so, kind of there's a little void in there, and you wish that you had that chance to celebrate uh, your mom. And so I always, when this time comes around, whether it's her birthday, whether it's Christmas, or whether it's Mother's Day, I always get like a little, little, little melancholy because there's a void in me, and I wish I could, could talk up my mom. I wish I could celebrate her. Or make her feel special. I want to rain flowers on her. I want to do so many incredible things, but I can't, right? And so if you get that opportunity, please, please do so. So, but here, talk about my mom. I remember, I remember the first time I realized that my mom had a life before me. Anybody, anybody came to that conclusion before? That moment where you realized that your mom had a life before you. I was in absolute shock. 
right? I was in absolute shock. I saw this picture of her, and it's one of those, like, like orangey-colored pictures, you know what I'm talking about? That was, like, before full color came in. And it's not black and white, but it's not colored either. It's like an orangey glaze to it, right? And I remember seeing that picture. I pulled it out out of that photo album when you peel the plastic. It, Right? And you try to take that picture out and it's like, you need a chisel because it's been there for so many years. So I remember as a kid pulling that picture out and I'm like, man, man, look at this lady. She has long hair. She has this tight fitted black outfit, polyester at that, right? And it is fitting. It is beautiful. And I was like, mom, who is this lady? Like, is she, are we related to her? And she was like, let me see. And she looked down, right? She, looked, she was like, in Spanish, well, tu mommy. And I was, meaning my mom, it was her, and I, she was like, and then she started moving her head like she was dancing salsa. Like there was music in there. I was like, hey! Like, she was proud of that moment, and all I could think of was, what do you mean you had a life before me that didn't revolve about me? I'm your puppy. I'm your puppy, Chulo. I'm the little one in this house, right? We're a single parent, right? She was a single parent, so I was the man of the house. And I was like, what do you mean there was somebody that looked like you before I came along? And at that moment, it was just like shocking to me that my mom had a life before me. Husbands, let me ask you this. Have you ever showed your kids a picture of their mom, right? A picture of their mom, right? And your kids were like dumbfounded, like, really? Right? They never thought of her as a person. They only thought about her as a mom. All right, check this picture out. Woo! Look at that pretty thing right there. Look at that. That's a handsome fella right there. I tell you my son right there. I got it right there. And so we show pictures of our kids. They're like, wow. She didn't look the way she looks now? Like, like I can see my daughters right now looking like that. Right, though? It's incredible. There are all of these expectations that come with being a mom, though, many of which are unspoken. Some come from your own upbringing or your own ideals, the types of people we surround ourselves with, movies that we've seen, books that we've read, right, IG accounts that we follow. And some are just the results of the culture that we're all surrounded by. But according to the mental health, according to Mental Health America, women experience depression at roughly twice the rate of men. One in every eight women in the U.S. develop clinical depression in their lifetime. The issues that most uh, often flare up, uh, flare up depression among women are related to hormones, menstruation, childbirth, infertility, menopause. Interestingly, all of these issues stem or are related to the reproduction or motherhood. Depression occurs most frequently in women during ages 25 to 44, which is the prime years of mothering. Statistically, two of the highest demographics for depression are single moms and women in unhappy marriages. So where, where is all this pressure and stress coming from? 
A big part of it is the rise uh, of the ideal of effortless perfection. Effortless perfection is the pressure to appear like you're amazing at everything without even trying. And that's just not among moms. That's everyone and everywhere. It's the idea that you should never have to prepare but still be smart, smooth, and successful. That you, you should talk about how much uh, you, excuse me, you should talk about how much you have to do, but never let anyone see you doing anything. You should appear carefree and fun, but never strict or silly. You should be able to joke or comment on any topic. You should be slightly unique while still completely fitting in. You should be incredibly social and financially successful. You should mask all signs of loss, failure, and melancholy. Never let people see you sad. You can sprinkle a little annoyances into your everyday conversations as long as you don't bring up any real, long-lasting, heavy struggles. Because the truth of the matter is that people don't really care or have time for what's really going on with you. And above all, just don't be a Debbie Downer. Because we don't like Debbie Downers in our circle. At Stanford, they started calling this the duck syndrome. The duck syndrome is the impression, like a duck, that like a duck, you should appear to glide smoothly across the lake of life, even if you're paddling madly below the surface. But up top, you're graceful. Meanwhile, nobody's seeing those little... I find that amazing. You know, you've been to Bridgeport, that little pond right there. You see them do that, right? Okay. Right? The struggle and the spin out. You can struggle and spin out all you want, but just keep it out of sight because nobody really wants to see that. Not only do you have the pressure to be smart, beautiful, thin, and popular without seeming to try, but pile on top of that all of the expectations that come from being a mom. To raise perfect kids, afford them every opportunity, to keep your figure into your 50s, to keep the house clean, to contribute to the family, financially to the family, to prepare delicious third generation, fourth generation recipes, be active in your community, and keep your man happy, if you know what I mean. Listen, growing up in a society that prioritizes and platforms these expectations, no wonder, no wonder depression statistics read like they do. Life is tough on all of us, especially women, especially moms. And if you feel like I'm talking about you this morning, mom, do I have a story for you today. And it's not technically about being a mom. It's really a story about wanting to be a mom, but not being able to have kids. And how absolutely crushing that is, and how no one really gets it. And how you feel weird on special holidays while everyone is celebrating motherhood. You want to be happy for them. You really do. 
but you feel broken and hurting inside. And how complicated all of that must be. See, it's a story about that. And it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. And this story starts off by saying, he had two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Penaniah had some children, but Hannah didn't. Who, who, who is the person we're talking about? Is Elkanah. Elkanah. If I miss, miss say the names and, and you are like, you love all that stuff, that's cool. But I, I, may, I may say it wrong. Just bear with me. So it starts off with that scripture verse. And when things start off like that, I start to wonder, man, like, why did God want to put that in there? Like, why did he start off with that? Why did he give us this detail that Penaniah had some children, but Hannah didn't? Let's keep reading. And we're going we're gonna to read and we're going to cut in. We're going to read and we're going to cut in, right? Verse 3, each year, Elkanah and his family's journeyed to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship the Lord. Uh, the heavens and to sacrifice and to sacrifice to him. On the day he presented his sacrifices, Elkanah uh, would celebrate the happy occasion by giving presents to Peninnah and her children. But although he loved Hannah very much, he could only he could give her only one present, for the Lord had sealed her womb, so she had no children to give presents to. Now, it's not just the people on the outside that are treating her differently. It's her own family that's treating her differently. Her own husband is like, I love you, but, right? They justify the way they treat her because she clearly is being punished by God. She's got to be thinking, man, I, I feel so bad. Society tells me that, that I'm not good enough. My own husband thinks that there's something wrong with me. And also, apparently, God, God is punishing me. Things can't get any worse. Let's continue to read in verse 6. Penina made matters worse by taunting Hannah because of her barrenness. Every year, it was the same. Penina scoffing and laughing at her, at her as they went to Shiloh. Some of you are thinking, you see, that's why I don't like going to church. Because it's those church people. They always got to be gossiping. They always got to be, they are the worst. They are the, aren't they supposed to be loving people, but they are the ones that throw in the first rock. Let's keep reading. 7b says, as Penn and I were scoffing and laughing at her as they went to Shiloh, they were making her cry so much that she couldn't eat. Again, Usually, when we drop into a depressive state, it's not a, a spur-of-the-moment thing. It's something that's been brewing for a while. It's been something that's been building up now, and we've reached a breaking point. So they've been making fun of her. They've been, they've been, they've been ridiculing her. They've, they've been mocking her. And now this is starting to build up inside of her that is looking for a way out. Verse 8, what's the matter, Hannah? Elkanah would exclaim. Why aren't you eating? Why make such a fuss over having no children? 
This is the favorite line. Isn't having me better than having 10 sons? Church, when we look at someone who, who's depressed, we often look at too narrow of a window to try to find an explanation. But it's a culmination of things spanning multiple aspects of our experience. It's relations, it's circumstantial, it's uh, situational, it's mental. These are the things that, that, that are all involved. All of it bring a little bit of, uh, a little bit of an ingredient into the, the mix. A typical husband thinks his life, his wife shouldn't have any wants or needs or desires outside of him. I'm not saying that's you guys. I'm just thinking out loud. Verse 9 says, One evening after supper, when they were at the Shiloh, where at Shiloh, Hannah went over to the tabernacle, right? That's where they felt God's presence, spirit was. Eli, the priest, was sitting at the customary place behind the entrance. She was in deep anguish and was crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. Verse 12, Eli noticed her mouth moving as she was praying silently and hearing no sound, thought that she had been drinking. Another fool. Verse 14, must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your bottle. <laughs> Why else would a woman be in church crying than the fact that she's drunk? Here, Eli makes an assumption. He doesn't know the context, doesn't know the storyline, doesn't know the back story, right? He doesn't know it. He doesn't know what's happened to her. He just sits there and makes an assumption about her. And this is why, this is why we don't want to tell people things. This is why we don't want to tell people things because we're worried that they're going to do to us what Eli did to her, making a sweeping generalization about us and our situation. Has this ever happened to you before? Someone doesn't even know what you're going through, someone that doesn't know the backstory, and all of a sudden they look from the outside, from the distance, and want to chime in and kind of sweep you into this broad generalization and put you in a group with everyone else apply one past experience with someone else, somewhere else, right, just because it fits the category. But let's be real here. We don't like that at all. We don't like people lumping us up into a particular group because of what they have experienced. Let's keep reading verse 15. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I'm not drunk, but I am very sad, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Please don't think that I'm just some drunken bum. Now, not only is, is Hannah mourning, but she's also having to defend herself against assumptions and stigmas about why she's mourning. She's not doing anything bad. She's not doing anything wrong or anything illegal. She's just doing something maybe socially awkward. And, what's, and that's what, what's, what kind of gets all of this attention, that even though that wasn't her intention, it is getting attention. 
Also, she went to pray by herself. She went to pray by herself. She didn't bring her girlfriends with her. She wasn't posting it on IG or Facebook. She went by herself, meaning she wasn't trying to make a scene or attract attention. Verse 17, Eli said, in that case, cheer up. May the Lord of Israel grant you your petition, whatever it is. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed and went happily back and began to take her meals again. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I want you to pay close attention. Eli, Eli doesn't apologize. Eli doesn't apologize. What does he do? He sends her on her way. Basically, man, if you're going to cry, that's fine. I just don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. And he doesn't give her any advice. He doesn't give her any compassion or help. But he's the priest. He's the one at the entrance of the tabernacle. He's the one that's been assigned to be support. He's the one that's been assigned to help her. He's the closest thing to a counselor and advisor that anyone would have. But what does he do? He just dismisses her. Like, whatever. That's a lot of it, and it's not my problem, so go take it somewhere else. Church, isn't that the thing that we're afraid of when we want to share what we're going through? Isn't that the thing that we are absolutely afraid of? People looking at us and saying, man, you're acting crazy. You're acting weird. And that's way too much for me. I can't handle it. Mm -mm. I can't handle it, and I don't want to be around it. Because the truth of the matter is, you're not my problem. The thing is that that may be the American way or the American culture today. That may be the way society operates today, but that's not exactly the biblical way. That's not exactly what, how God wants us to act. Romans 12, 15 and 16 says, when others are happy, be happy with them. If they are sad, share their sorrow. Work happily together. Don't try to act big. Don't try to get into the good graces of important people but enjoy the company of ordinary folks and don't think you know it all. Sometimes church, we act as if it reads, be happy with those who are happy and with those who weep, tell them to go somewhere else because they're making things awkward and it's embarrassing and, and ruining everybody else's good time. Why do we do that? Why do we do that to other people? Sometimes people don't want you to surface your sadness because it will remind them of their suppressed sadness. They don't want you to bring in your issues and your problems into the, into the circle because it's going to kind of highlight some of the things that they got going on in their world that don't line up. Their dismissal of how you feel, right, the dismissal of, of that feels personal to you. But the truth of the matter, it's not. It's not personal. In avoiding you, what they're doing is they're actually avoiding something inside of themselves. But here's, 
Here's the reality. The mental health problems of the individuals in your community, in a community, are the problems of that community. In other words, the things that we as a church are going through, that you're going through, because you belong to the South Hills community, now makes it our concern as a church. Because that's how we should be operating. That's how we should be having church. This ain't a click here. This is not about like, oh, I'm going to just go get mines. No, this is a tribe. This is a village. This is a community. And there are issues that need to be addressed within our community. And that is something that we should be addressing and taking care of. There's no way that you can look at all of the one another statements of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and not come to that conclusion that if it involves my brother and my sister here, then it involves me. Ouch or amen. Because that's the way church should be run. That's the way, that's the community I'm looking to build. That's the community that I want to be a part of. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any boundaries and you certainly can't fix other people or everyone, but you're definitely designed. You are definitely, you and I are definitely designed to help and serve and sacrifice and be inconvenienced by other people that you care for, that you love, that you call home here at South Hills. Eli Eli is basically like, man, just go home and try to eat something. <laughs> I'm surprised that it worked for her because I've been trying that strategy for years. <laughs> and all that has happened is I got fat and I kind of say it's sad. It didn't really <laughs> it didn't work for me. But it also didn't work for Eli either. Verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18 says, when the messenger mentioned what had happened to the ark, Eli fell backwards from his seat beside the gate and his neck was broken by the fall and he died. This is in scripture, for he was old and fat. He had judged Israel for 40 years. I make that up. It's in there. Go find it. Read it for yourself. He broke his neck because apparently every time someone was sad, including himself, he was like, go get something to eat. Right? Go get something to eat. Context is everything, folks. Context is everything. He might have been a priest, but he didn't know how to deal with his depressive tendencies the right way either. This story, friends, is a narrative of a couple reasons why people who are suffering don't ask for help. But it's just one example, not an exhaustive list. Let me give you a broader, a broader picture. You see, those suffering often stay stuck because they're too overwhelmed to act. They get stuck because they're too overwhelmed to act due to the depth of their sadness right, the, the fear of the, the stigma and unwillingness to address their sin or the size and scope of the road to, the, to recovery. 
So let's quickly talk about these things. If you have a pen and paper or camera ready, start taking notes because I'm going to go through this really quickly. Let's start off with the depth of their sadness. People who are seriously depressed sometimes just don't have the will to seek help. They just don't have the will to seek help. We're going to get into that a little more in depth uh, next week, but this is why, why medication can be helpful. If you can't get out of bed, right, how are you going to build any of the healthy habits that are necessary for you to stay healthy? You can't eat right, exercise, or connect with others if you're so low that you cannot even stand. Medication, church, doesn't remove your need to take action. It gives you just enough right, strength and clarity so that you can begin to take the action. Number two, the fear of stigma. Study after study shows that stigma is the number one reason those suffering don't seek help. Stigma is the process through which people who, who think or behave in ways that are different from society's norms are alienated or outcasted. The word comes from an ancient Greek word meaning a mark or a brand on the body made with a sharp instrument. Some form of stigma exists everywhere in the world, but what is stigmatized always varies according to place and time. Historically, those with um, mental illness have been judged, marginalized, discriminated against, and even experimented on. Who would want to open themselves up to that possibility? Then we have the unwillingness to address sin. Some people wrongly assume depression is always because of sin, and others wrongly assume that it never is. We don't want to acknowledge that something we're wrapped up, wrapped up in is actually wrong and have to humbly ask for help. So we make excuses and justify our self-destructive behaviors. But Psalm 32 reminds us, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Then I acknowledged my sin. James 5.16 gives us the healing, the healing that comes in confession. Admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, I get, I get that I need to admit that, that I'm struggling and I have a problem. But I've, I've already been open about my struggle. I've already been open about it. I just can't stomach what it takes to get better. And that's the final reason most people don't bring their anxiety and their depression into the light because it's going to take a while to get healthy and learn to manage their mental health because it's the size and the scope of recovery. And they're right. It's intimidating 
It's scary. Crawling out of a deep depression, it's too much work to do on your own. And that's why you need other people, other people that love and care about you. That's why we're encouraged to confess what we're going through with others. Again, according to the mind step of the New Testament, the mental health problems of individuals in a community are the problems of that community. Pastors come across uh, this in counseling uh, and when they're counseling their congregants um, all of the time. Someone will say to them like, Pastor, man, I like what you said in that sermon about retraining your thoughts. Can you just kind of just tell me real quickly how to do that? Because I need to be better by Monday. They're counting on me on Monday. Um, <laughs> no, not really. Because I can give you the tools, but that's probably only going to be something that you are going to have to work on for the rest of your life. It's an everyday process. Now, these four reasons are why people don't tend to want to seek help that have always been an issue. But they are highlighted, they're intensified because of the values and the priorities of the culture that we live in. Because in the culture and the society that we live in, right, the subtext is a loss isn't something you experience. A loser is who you are. I'm going to let that sit there for a second. Because in the culture that we live in, the subtext isn't, uh, it, the, a subtext is a, lo a loss isn't something that you experience. A loser is who you are. And here's the thing, it didn't always, it wasn't always like this. Losing used to evoke or bring about compassion, which literally means to suffer with. Now it doesn't bring about empathy as much as it brings about contempt. Like you lost, really? Like, ill. Like this is what's going on in your world? Like, really, why? Like, why would you let it get to that point? Like, why, like, what did you do, right? Loss is a condition to avoid church, right? Loss is a condition to avoid by relentlessly cultivating the mindset and behaviors of a winner. But the problem with tying our inner worth to our success, to our outer success, is that it's really elusive and uncontrollable most of the time. So when we are tying the way we are feeling inside to what we were able to accomplish on the outside, whether we won or not, more often than not, we're going to feel yucky inside because we can't really control our wins and our losses. How many games have we seen that the guy heaves a half-court side out of bounds play and he gets it in and you lose like yeah like they predicted that church you can't solve internal problems entirely with external validation you just can't 
cannot do that. So let me wrap this up this morning. So what do we do then? Right? That's the, that's the question here. Where do we go from here? What are the things that we need to apply to, to take one step forward in the season of life that we find ourselves in? I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. All of you who work so hard beneath a heavy yoke. Wear my yoke, for it fits perfectly. And let me teach you, for I am gentle and I am humble. And you shall find rest for your souls, for I give you only light, excuse me, for I give you only light burdens. I'll read that again because I think it's so powerful. Come to me and I will give you rest. All of you who work so hard beneath a heavy yoke, wear my yoke for it fits perfectly. And let me teach you for I am gentle and humble. And you shall find rest for your souls for I give you only light burdens. But I find it interesting that in order to come to Jesus, you have to actually admit that you are weak, that you are weary, that you are tired, and that you are struggling, that you are overwhelmed, and that you are unable to live up to the standard of an effortless perfection that we are all striving for at some level. Analyze where you are today. Look at your life today and see what is at your Pinterest board. What is on your Pinterest board of life? What are the things that you aspire? Who are you trying to be like? What are the things that somebody else has that you want to attain? How are you going about it? What are you sacrificing what are you doing that does not line up with the Word of God and how God wants you to live your life in order for you to attain, achieve effortless perfection? Because when we take that look in the mirror and we kind of look at that and we take this scripture into mind, we cannot help and ask the question, God, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to help me? Are you going to make me a winner, God? Are you going to make me successful, God? Are you going to make me the most, have the most likes, the most followers? Am I going to live on a, on a mountaintop with the best views? Am I going to drive the best car out there? No. That's not what God is going to do. What he's going to do is give you rest. In other words, he's going to free us 
from the notion that we have to win at everything all of the time. I said it last week, right? After our loss, my mom said, did you win? I said, no. And she said, then why are you playing? As if the only reason you play is to win. And God says, no. I'm going to give you rest. Rest from that notion that you have to win at everything all of the time. I also love how Jesus describes himself humble and gentle. You mean not brash and not overconfident and not confrontational and not unquestionable as a leader? How un-American is that? Church, I wonder what would happen if you and I took God, what God said, what Jesus said seriously. What sort of rest, what sort of peace, what sort of freedom might be available if we allowed ourselves to humbly admit that we needed help? Who could you safely express your full range of emotions to? If you actually believed your emotional health was essential, what might you need to do even though you were afraid to do so? And what if the goal wasn't effortless perfection, but fully surrendered imperfection? What if we could change the conversation? What if we could shift the culture? Maybe not everywhere, but right here with the people in our community, in our tribe, in our village, with the people that we're connected to, with the people that we care to do life with. You want to know the truth? Normal is an illusion. Normal is an illusion. Everyone is weird. Everyone is weird. The question is, what kind of weird are you? I'll admit it. You didn't said it before. I got a weird pastor. He's funny, but he's weird. You see, it's being willing to discover and admit the ways in which that you're weird and how things are both helpful and not. And then committing to be the best version of yourself, which will never look like anyone else. Newsflash. God created you to be you and not anyone else. You don't have to win all of the time, and you don't have to hide out when you're not winning. But truly knowing and accepting yourself in this way requires something we don't like to offer. It requires being humble. Proverbs 11, 2, with humility comes wisdom. You see, the humility to admit where you are at, to not have it 
all together, to own your weirdness, to trust others with your story, with your fears, with your failures, right, with your setbacks, to commit to a long road of recovery, to adjust your way of thinking and living. That's the beginning of wisdom and healing, church. That's the road that we must all get on. starts starts by accepting and seeking the help of God. Amen?